Welcome to Friendship with God with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. For free resources and free messages, visit our website, friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org. Or call us for more information at 800-247-3051, 800-247-3051. Now here is our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. Okay, Genesis 14, verse 18, I'll start here. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was the priest of the Most High God. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand. And he gave him tithes of all. And the king of Sodom said unto Abram, Give me the persons and take the goods to thyself. And Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have lift up mine hand unto the Lord, the Most High God, the possessor of heaven and earth, that I will not take from a thread even to a shoe latchet, and that I will not take anything that is thine, lest thou should stay, I have made Abram rich. Save only that which the young men have eaten, and the portion of the men which went with me, Aner, Eshkel, and Mamre, let them take their portion. Now, going on to verse 1 of chapter 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. Okay, so you remember how in our last study that we saw the entrance of this person, Melchizedek. Very, very interesting. He comes, he breaks the pattern, as we saw of everyone else that we've seen in the book of Genesis. We have known the genealogy of everybody else. We know who their father was. He was the son of so-and-so, and we know the generations, and so-and-so, but not Melchizedek. He just shows up on the scene, and in verse 18, it's like an abrupt and Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth. And that's it. Just so simple. It's Melchizedek. And immediately, we're brought to what he did. And it's as if the word of God here, the way this is portrayed to us here, it's as if the Bible is saying here, his genealogy doesn't matter. And it doesn't matter who his father was. And it doesn't matter who his sons were. Because for Melchizedek, those things are just not important. So if those things are really not important, then what does the Word of God focus on about what's important about Melchizedek? And, and it, it, it focused on what he did. That was what was important. It reminds me of my friend, I think I told you this before, Tomaskin in Ethiopia. Therefore, he was 12 years old when he learned that he had osteosarcoma in his right leg, cancer of the bone. And so they amputated at the hip his leg, and all his family was, they were crying, his mother and his sister, and, and they were crying and crying over his cancer. But he didn't, and they told me that. They told me, it said, he wasn't really that upset about it. He just had a perfect peace. Why? Because three years before that, when he was nine years old, back in his village, which is not very far from the Scanabody's compound there in, in Ethiopia, but his village was is not like ours, Muslim. His village is animist, is animist. But anyway, in his village, he met the Savior. And even though his uncle was the witch doctor for, this, for the village and had beat him and his mother and his sister so that they couldn't go to church, he stood with the big stick in front of the hut and he beat him back. But they got up in the middle of the night and they went to church anyway. And, but now he was at this Mother Teresa hospital 
And the full name of the hospital is Mother Teresa Hospital for the Destitute. That gives you a clue about what it was there. And he had taken his place, and this is about maybe 2,500 patients in this place, and they had one room where they had about 30 children with terminal cancer, you know, triple bunks. You know, I've been there and spoken to those kids and all of a very good spirit, but they all have terminal cancer. And their doctor is my friend, Dr. Rick Hodes. He's an Orthodox Jew. And one day, after Temeskin's amputation, Rick was examining Temeskin, and he realized, he discovered that Temeskin's cancer wasn't gone, that it wasn't all in his leg when they amputated his leg, and that, in fact, it had spread into his lungs and other parts of his body. So it looked very bad. So Rick sat down with Temeskin to tell Temeskin that he's, no, he's 12 years old at this point, that his cancer has spread and that he's not going to survive. And so there the two look at each other. I mean, it was just, a, if you can imagine this kind of a meeting. I mean, here's Temeskin, a black man, Rick, a white man. There's Temeskin. It was the meeting of, of a Gentile Temeskin and, and Rick the Jew. And it was a, a meeting between Temeskin in his sickness with terminal cancer and Rick in the prime of his health. And it was a meeting between Temeskin, who was so poor, and and, and he is so poor, he was wearing his whole wardrobe. He didn't have any other clothes except what he was wearing, which is very typical, in front of him. And and Rick, by comparison, and just an, an enormously wealthy man. It was a meeting between Temeskin, a saved man, and Rick, a lost soul. And, and both Temeskin and Rick, they individually, separately, they told me about that meeting. And because what happened at that meeting was so profound, and I asked both of them the same question. And I, I asked them, I said, who do you think was richer at that meeting, Temeskin or Rick? And, and so here's what happened. So Rick tells Temeskin that the amputation didn't clear the, from his body the cancer. He tells him his cancer is terminal. And, you know, he wasn't sure that this impact, that, that, that he had really communicated what he was trying to say to Temeskin, that he wasn't going to survive. And so then Rick tells, tells Temeskin, and, he, and then he asks him a question. He says, Temeskin, are you afraid to die? <laughs> Can you imagine? It was a 12-year-old boy. Temeskin, are you afraid to die? And what Temeskin did and what he said so moved Rick that, it, that Rick tells everybody about what he responded. Temeskin looks back at Rick, and with all the earnestness and sincerity of a 12-year-old, he, he says to him, no, he says, I'm not afraid to die because everyone's going to die sometime. And it doesn't matter when you die. It matters what you do before you die. Isn't that remarkable? He said that. Now, that was Temeskin. That's just the way he was. We have a monument to Temeskin on our compound in Ethiopia. It's a tree that was cut down and grew back again. And so we put a little bench around there and an invitation for people to sit there and think about Temeskin. Because when Temeskin was was 15, cancer did win that battle. Cancer did kill his body, but it didn't kill his soul. Cancer, Cancer... separated him from his life on earth, but cancer did not separate him from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. So throughout all of his sufferings, Temeskin, 
He always lived up to the meaning of his name. His mean, in Amharic, in Ethiopian language, Temeskin means thank God. And Temeskin was always doing that. He was thanking God. He was a grateful kid. But at that meeting between Temeskin and Rick, it was a meeting of a 12-year-old boy with terminal cancer having received the gift of eternal life in heaven as his home because he received the Jewish Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ, And here he is telling an Orthodox Jewish man in his 40s who is desperately trying to earn eternal life in heaven by caring for the poor kids with cancer and yet rejecting the Jewish Messiah. It was something. And the only thing that mattered was what he did before he died. And the 12-year-old boy had done the most important thing before he died. He had received the Jewish Messiah and poor Rick... He had rejected the Jewish Messiah, and he was trying to do everything he could to earn what was really a free gift. Now, so in other words, after you do the most important thing in life, which is to receive the Lord Jesus Christ, then it does matter what you do in your life. And that's the point that Melchizedek, about Melchizedek, that's being made in the Word of God. It's showing us in verse 18 that the only thing that matters is what you do before you die. And that's what verse 18 is all about, because along, verse 18 is like this, and along came Melchizedek, and that's the way it comes here. We don't know anything about him, but along came Melchizedek. So there was Abraham, pictured for us in verse 18, with the words, return from the slaughter of Kedoloermir and of the kings that were with him. And now here comes Melchizedek, and he sees Abraham, and the point here is that there's no delay on Melchizedek's part. There's no hesitation at all. And he says to himself in verse 18, Melchizedek says to himself in verse 18, you know what? There's a man of God who needs refreshment, and I'll bring him bread and wine. And that's what he does. And Melchizedek saw Abraham, and without any delay or any hesitation, he says to himself, there's a man of God who needs encouragement, and I'll tell him that he's been blessed by the Most High God, and I'll tell him that God is the possessor of heaven and earth. And Melchizedek saw this, and without any hesitation, without any delay, he just jumps in. He says to himself, there's a man who needs, to, who needs prayer, and I'm a priest of the Most High God, and I will pray to God for him, and I'll praise God for how Abraham has delivered, how God has delivered all of Abraham's enemies into his hand. And so Melchizedek does this in verses 18 and 19 and 20 without any delay, without any hesitation. He recognizes the opportunity and he jumps on it. He jumps on it. Now, it's just the same as what we've been studying in the past with with Mordecai and Esther. Because when Mordecai says to Esther, he, he he says, your opportunity is here, Esther. It's now. So don't delay and don't hesitate. That's the whole background of Esther 4.14 when he said, for if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then there shall arise, then there shall enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. But thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. And who knoweth whether thou art come unto the kingdom for such a time as this? It was as if Melchizedek could hear the challenge to his own heart from God saying, Melchizedek, if you don't move now to bring refreshment, to bring prayer, to bring encouragement to my man Abraham, 
Then I'll take care of Abraham from another place. Oh, don't you worry about that. I will, but you will miss out, Melchizedek. You will miss out because this is your opportunity. This is your chance. The spotlight's on you right now. Melchizedek, who knoweth whether thou art coming to the kingdom for such a time as this. And so what Melchizedek did in response is a great challenge for us because we need to be like he was, Melchizedek was. Wow, how? Looking for opportunities to refresh, to encourage, to pray for others like Melchizedek did. And when we see those opportunities to refresh and encourage and pray for others is the reason that we are in this place at this time, whatever it might be, and say, for such a time as this. That's an attitude. For such a time as this is to walk through life and to say, I've come to that for such a time as this. That was Melchizedek. Not delaying, not hesitating as he didn't. Now, from verse 18, then, and from the absence of genealogy, and just the word and, just the word and, the way it starts off there with nothing coming before it, we've come to understand the importance of what we do in life and how we cannot rest on our background. That's just like the Lord Jesus Christ indicated. There's that time. He's teaching many people. They're receiving it. They're not just listening and they're hearing and they're understanding, but they're absorbing it so that they can do it. And what happens? Something occurs, which is recorded for us. And thank God it is recorded for us. It teaches us a lot in Luke 8, 20 and 21. It reads like this. And it was told him by certain which said, thy mother and thy brethren stand without, desiring to see thee. And he answered and said unto them, my mother and my brethren are these which hear the word of God and do it. So here it is. The prospect now is before him at this time. He says, look, your mother and your brothers are here. So drop everything. Stop everything. Because your family is here. Forget about all those people who are listening to you and wanting to do what you said. Your flesh and blood has arrived. And he says, when it comes to the matter of that, he says, Flesh and blood are the ones that hear the word of God and do it. So that's a good example. So now we're making good progress. We've just covered one word, (laughs) the word and, (laughs) in verse 18. We're ready to move on to the next word. See, we move quickly. All right, verse 18. The next words of verse 18 are very important. Melchizedek, king of Salem. Just think about how the word of God has described this man to us here. Melchizedek, king of Salem. I think we should turn to Hebrews 7.2. We have a verse that is a commentary on these four words, Melchizedek, king of Salem. That's what it is. From verse 18 in Genesis 14.18, we have four words, Melchizedek, king of Salem. And the word of God is very instructive to us because in Hebrews 17, it's a whole verse that's commenting on four words. So what does it say in Hebrews 7.2? To whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being by interpretation king of righteousness, which, and after that also king of Salem, which is king of peace. So this verse is really telling us, don't gloss over those words, Melchizedek, king of Salem, in verse 18, because it's saying to us, stop and unpack the meaning of those four words, Melchizedek, king of Salem. So first of all, Hebrews 17 is telling us to unpack the meaning, and it tells us to carefully look at the titles and the meanings of his names. Now, what that's so important to us is that it shows us how we should approach the Word of God, how we should study the Word of God. 
is directing us, stop, unpack. Okay, Melchizedek. He says, first being by interpretation, king of righteousness. So this verse in Hebrews is, is directing us to look at the meaning. Melchizedek. So Melchiz from Melech for king and Zedek from Zadik for righteousness. So Melchizedek is by interpretation king of righteousness. And then Hebrews 17 tells us, see carefully the second title, which it says, and after that, you know, it's like, don't go away. After that, also king of Salem, which is king of peace. So the Hebrew word Salem is the word um, shalem, which comes from the word shalom, it's peace. So Hebrews 7.2 is directing us to note his titles carefully, king of righteousness, king of peace. This person's called the king of righteousness. This person's called the king of peace. This is a royal title that ties two things together, righteousness and peace, and it's very important. Why? Because linking righteousness and peace together is full of meaning. It's, he's the king of righteousness, king of peace. It's the link between righteousness and peace that's so very important because the Bible has a lot to say about the link between righteousness and peace. The Bible describes something called the work of righteousness, the work of righteousness. And there are three things that are very important to understand about the work of righteousness. It's important to understand what it is, the work of righteousness. It's important to understand the result of it, the effect, what it accomplishes, And it's important to understand just when and where did this work occur. So now, we have the verse in Isaiah 53, because here in a very, very popular verse is really a description of the work of righteousness in Isaiah 53.5. Isaiah 53.5 says, But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement or the punishment for our peace was upon him, and with his stripes were healed. That is a description of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ, but it's a description of a work. It's a work that he did. We look at this verse and we say, well, I don't think it looks like a work. It looks like a victim. It looks like he's a victim. We say he was a victim of the Romans who tortured him with their machine, the cross, the crucifixion, and that's how we look at it on the surface. But he wasn't a victim. Why do we know he wasn't a victim? Because a victim does not want to die. And a victim's life is taken from them against his will. A victim is not the description of the Lord Jesus Christ because he described his death and he said in John 10, 17 through 18, therefore doth my father love me because I lay down my life that I might take it again. No man takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down of this commandment have I received from my Father. So words like that, I lay down my life. No man takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. Those are not the words of a victim. Though What he's describing here was not a passive victim, but he's describing a work, a very hard work. He was a very hard worker, doing a very hard work. And so in Isaiah 53, 5, when it describes this, it's described him working very hard to be wounded for our transgressions. He was working very hard to be bruised for our iniquities. He was working very hard to be beaten uh, with stripes so that we could be healed. And, what, when, and, and, and the work that he was doing is summed up and it's described in the verse Isaiah 53, 11, where it says, for he shall see, speaking of the father, shall see the travail of his soul, 
and shall be satisfied. Then it says, by his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. So what was the work that he was doing? It was, by his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many. In other words, the work that the Lord Jesus Christ was doing, the righteous servant, he was justifying. It was a work of justifying. It was a hard job to justify you and me from our sins, and he did it. And that was the work that he was doing there, justification. And it was the work of justification. It's the same thing as the work of atonement. It's the work of atonement. So the general description of what he was doing is given to us in Romans 4, 5. He was justifying the ungodly. That's you and I. We're the ungodly, and his work was to justify us. It wasn't easy. We made it pretty hard on him. Because that's who we are. We're the ungodly. As it says in Romans 8.33, it is God that justifieth. So it was God in the flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ, justifying. So the general description of his work is that he was justifying the ungodly. The exact details were given to us, actually in the end of that same verse, Isaiah 53.11, where it says, he shall bear their iniquities. That's how he did it. And so in Isaiah 53.12, when it describes that in more detail, he said he poured out his soul unto death. It doesn't say that his soul was poured out. He poured out his soul unto death. That was a hard job. And he was numbered with the transgressors. He bore the sin of many, and he made intercession for the transgressors. That's the work of righteousness. That's the work of righteousness. It was making, the work of righteousness was to make the unrighteous righteous by dying for the sins of the unrighteous. That's the work of righteousness. Now, what's the end or the result of the work of righteousness? A few verses over, Isaiah 32, 7. Isaiah 32, 7, it says, The work of righteousness shall be peace, and the effect of righteousness, quietness and assurance forever. Peace, quietness, assurance. That's what the effect is of all this peace and quietness from our sins as being in a state of a blessed assurance that all our sins have been paid for. Once a believer had a dream in which he dreamt that the devil had presented him with a list of horrible sins. In his dream, he looked, he saw the list, and he knew that he had done those things and that were all written there. He'd done those things in his life. And in the dream, the believer said to the devil, is that all, devil? Is that all you have? Is that, is that, have, you got a, have you got another list? And, and in his dream, he says that which time the devil then presented the believer with an even longer list, and he looked that over, and they were all true things, horrible things that he had done in his life. And then in the dream, the, the, the believer shouts to the devil, is that all? Is that all? Is that it? Is that it, devil? Do you have an, yet another list? And the devil presents even a longer list with more of these horrible sins that he had done in his life. And then, with that, the believer then says to the devil, all right, devil, right across every page, paid in full, 1 John 1, 7, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses from all sin. Okay? That's the work of righteousness. That's the work of righteousness when he made his blood to pay for all our sins and to cleanse us. And that's the effect of righteousness when he silenced the devil. He silences our own hearts that condemn us for our sins. That's quietness. That's assurance forever. Now, all a person has to do 
for the work of righteousness to be applied is just receive it. It's a gift. It's called in the Bible the gift of righteousness. In Romans 5.17, it says, For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. And the next verse says, Therefore, as by the offense of one ju- judgment came upon all men to condemnation, so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. So the work of righteousness was the Lord Jesus Christ making possible the gift of his righteousness to us. Isn't that wonderful? Thank you for listening to Friendship with God with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. If you would like to hear more of this message or other messages by Tom Cantor, visit our website, friendshipwithgod.org. That's friendshipwithgod.org. Or go to itunes.com and search for the Friendship with God podcast. All messages are cataloged by date and all available for free listening and free download. You can also call us directly for more information at 800 800- 247-3051-800-247-3051. Thanks for listening to Friendship with God with Tom Cantor. What are you doing this Thursday? Come to the Creation and Earth History Museum in Santee, California for our Thursday night Bible study and fellowship. This Thursday at 6.30 p.m. we'll study aliens, UFOs, and what the Bible says about them and answer the question, are we alone? And what does God's Word say about close encounters of the fourth kind? Join us at the Creation Museum in Santee, California. Call us, 619-599-1104, 619-599-1104, or creationsd.org, creationsd.org.